from Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest on the podvocate today is Professor Paul Kapfer. Professor Kapfer started his journey at Valparaiso University, where he studied international economics and French. He also spent a year at the University of Geneva in Switzerland as a Fulbright scholar. He earned his JD from the University of Iowa and then served 20 years in the United States Navy in the JAG Corps. On active duty, his most frequent role was in-house counsel, advising a Navy region commander on criminal prosecutions and army generals in Iraq on the law of armed conflict. Paul supervised a group of 10 attorneys and 20 paralegals, trained Indian naval officers on piracy prosecution, and wrote a small piece of personnel legislation passed by Congress. After hanging up his uniform, Paul earned a master's degree in real estate development from the University of Maryland. During the program, he worked with a minority-owned firm to design a multifamily development in the Washington, D.C. suburb of Silver Spring. He also served on the board of Greenbelt Homes, the New Deal's last surviving workforce housing project. Paul now works as project development manager and general counsel with the Renaissance Companies, an affordable housing developer based in Chicago and expanding westward. Professor Kapfer also teaches international humanitarian law at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. Good morning, Professor. How are you today? Doing fine, Lenny. How are you? I am doing well, thank you. And we have Leanne with us today. How are you this morning? I'm doing all right for a Friday morning. Hi, Leanne. Today we are discussing the South China Sea. However, before we get into that, I'd like to lay the groundwork as far as the international law that covers the world's oceans, mainly the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. Professor, could you give us perhaps a Reader's Digest version of this treaty? Sure. The UN Convention on the Law of the Sea was concluded in 1982, and that was the result of about nine years of negotiation that was essentially prompted by increasing claims by coastal nations of what were variously called historical claims to territorial seas or economic rights to exploit the the waters off their coasts. And the bargain that was struck during the course of those nine years was essentially between two sets of interests. One generally was that of states with longtime maritime mobility, regular presence on the high seas, countries like the United States, like the Soviet Union at the time. Many of the NATO countries considered themselves in that category, basically countries that wanted freedom of navigation, the freedom to operate without a lot of unpredictable restrictions from coastal nations as they approached land masses or or went away from land masses by sea. And the other group uh, was everybody else. It was uh, many developing nations at the time, and, and their interest was in asserting economic rights over the oceans off their coastlines, the rights to fish, the rights to mine, uh, to, to drill for oil. And uh, the bargain that was struck over the course of those nine years was essentially that a set of maritime domains would be created. 
and codified by treaty. And that treaty became the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea that would enhance the reliable rights of those coastal states in return for which the, the maritime states gained a kind of certainty over their ability to navigate on the high seas. So the basic framework that was laid out in, and I'm going to call it UNCLOS, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, sometimes it's referred to as the Law of the Sea Treaty, which has the unfortunate acronym LOST, so I won't use that one. But the basic framework starts with what's called a baseline. And the baseline is, as you might imagine, it's essentially the coastline of of a given coastal state. And the coastline is, is drawn at the high tide elevation, the, the location where land is constantly exposed and not underwater, seaward. So the baseline uh, extends along the, the parallel to the coast of the coastal state. And then seaward from there, every coastal state under UNCLOS has the right to claim a territorial sea that is 12 nautical miles wide. And a nautical mile is slightly, slightly longer than a regular mile. As you continue seaward from the baseline, you have uh, another set of 12 nautical miles that's referred to in UNCLOS as the contiguous zone. And the contiguous zone is where things like sanitary, security, law enforcement interests of the coastal state can be continue to be enforced. Essentially, it's kind of a buffer from things that the coastal state may not want to get any closer. And sanitary, that's like uh, dumping at sea. Yeah, it's environmental. Okay. Now, there's a third maritime domain that's created under UNCLOS, and it's the one that has to do with this grand bargain that was struck between the, the coastal states and the maritime nations. And that is referred to as the Exclusive Economic Zone, or the EEZ. And the, the EEZ extends from the baseline 200 nautical miles out towards the high seas, and it in fact includes what is for all other purposes called the high seas after you get beyond that 24-mile that contiguous zone. So in the exclusive economic zone, if coastal states claimed such an area, they were entitled to the exclusive exploitation of resources there, such as fisheries, such as, again, oil drilling, mining, any kinds of economic activity that a coastal state might benefit from off of its own coast. That was considered to be exclusive to the coastal state that claimed it. And there was a whole framework set up in the United Nations for coastal states to deposit their exclusive economic zone claims and, and other kinds of uh, maritime claims under UNCLOS. But let me pause there in case you have any questions. The one question that I would have is, as far as people involved in this topic we're discussing today, have they all ratified UNCLOS? Uh, certainly the ones that we're talking about today. The United States uh, has, has not ratified, but uh, adheres to UNCLOS. And there's a whole story about why the U.S. hasn't ratified, which we can get into. It's, it's actually kind of important in terms of the perspective that China brings to this debate. Well, what, what was China's role at this point? China, China was one of the leaders of the coastal states at the time that was advocating for those expanded coastal rights, uh, and in fact did ratify. It was one of the earliest uh, countries to ratify UNCLOS. And then how did that tie into the United States' involvement? 
very briefly, the U.S.'s initial objection to UNCLOS, and this was the, the treaty was concluded initially in 1982, so during the Reagan administration. And the first thing President Reagan did was to express the U.S.'s reservations about a framework in the treaty that was designed to share deep seabed mining resources. And those would include, of course, oil, if you could drill that deep. But primarily the the resource that was discussed that was considered most likely to be exploited were metal deposits on on the seabed floor in in the shape of what they called nodules, chunks of metal or uh, below the surface of the ocean floor. And that area, and it's called area with a capital A in the treaty, uh, under the high seas, on the seabed and below it, uh, was declared to be the common heritage of mankind. And so uh, there was an organization established under Article 11 of UNCLOS to administer this this area, uh, to administer the deep seabed mining regime of the treaty, and to share the resources of the uh, mineral exploitation with all of the adherence to UNCLOS. Right. Okay. So then what position did the United States take? The U.S.'s position on that was that this could potentially undermine legitimate claims that the U.S. might assert, or at least unilaterally assert, to, to mine certain areas of the seabed on its own, simply because it had the ability to do so, the technological ability to do so, and it didn't want to be restricted in in being allowed to do that by the treaty. So almost immediately, because the U.S. was in a position to throw its weight around on issues like that, a new round of talks was was started. And that was concluded in 1994 with a secondary agreement under UNCLOS that the short version is it gave the U.S. a veto authority over decisions by the Seabed Mining Administration that the U.S. believed would be counter to its interests. So in 1994, and this this second round of talks was spearheaded by this first Bush administration, concluded in 1994, and President Clinton then deposited UNCLOS with the Senate for ratification. And everybody thought that basically the last objections to U.S. Uh, adherence to the, to the UNCLOS treaty had been eliminated. Well, the Senate thought differently. Uh, it still had uh, and this was essentially the Republican side of the Senate. It still had concerns about sovereignty, about a, an international uh, framework that would limit U.S. sovereignty over what it saw as customary international legal rights on the high seas. And over the years, although every president, including President Reagan, has, has recommended ratification of the treaty, it has never been ratified. The last serious effort to have it ratified was the second Bush administration. Uh, in 2007, and the Senate didn't act, and and the I believe it was the 108th Congress returned the treaty uh, without action to the State Department. So what that has left in place is, from the U.S. perspective, an understanding that UNCLOS is considered to represent customary international law, and just you know to very briefly review that framework, they're essentially two sources of of international law. One is treaties, agreements between countries, and the other is custom, legal authority that has built up and is considered binding through through the years, through the decades. And the interesting thing about UNCLOS is that even though it's a fairly young treaty, um, it was was viewed as so uh, universally accepted in terms of 
the maritime framework that I was describing with the baselines and the contiguous zone and the territorial sea extended to 12 nautical miles, all that stuff, high seas freedoms, the ability to navigate freely on everything that wasn't in one of those maritime domains, that it it is considered to have transitioned very quickly into custom, into universally accepted international law. And so the, the U.S., and in particular the U.S. Navy, navigates and asserts its rights on the high seas with reference to UNCLOS, even though the U.S. has never ratified it. And that brings us to our debate with China. And it's not, of course, just our debate. It's, it's a debate that the other countries surrounding the South China Sea have with China. To simplify things a bit, the U.S. has taken the side of those countries in their disputes with China over China's claims in the South China Sea. Thank you for that overview of UNCLOS. That's something I hadn't considered is that the U.S. might not actually have ratified this, which is interesting to say the least. Um, You mentioned China and these other countries around the South China Sea. So let's put that a little into a little bit of geographical context. So who all is involved and what does the area look like geographically in terms of like zones of coverage, so to speak? The South China Sea is, as you might imagine from the name, it's south of China. It is uh, contiguous with the Pacific Ocean, essentially part of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, it's not a huge space. It's, it's essentially surrounded by, uh, on the north by China, on the northeast by, by the island of Taiwan, uh, on the east by the Philippine Islands, which is uh, an archipelago, on the southeast by Malaysia, and on the, on the due south by Indonesia, another archipelago, cluster of islands regulated in a particular way under UNCLOS. And then on the western border of the South China Sea, you have uh, the nation of Vietnam. And in a, in a little inlet that isn't so little, really, you have the, the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, where some early action in the Vietnam War happened. And you have, separating the Gulf of Tonkin from the rest of the South China Sea, you have the island of Hainan. And Hainan Island is owned by China uh, and is the site of, a, of another kind of famous incident where there was conflict between the U.S. and China back in the, I believe, early 2000s, in which a, a U.S. aircraft was downed, forced to land on Hainan Island, and the crew was kept, uh, was not allowed to leave there for some time. So that's the area that we're talking about. What's, what's interesting about the, the dispute is, is what a kind of simple mechanism gets, gets referenced as the source of the dispute. And that mechanism is a map that the, what was then the Republic of China, the predecessor to the People's Republic of China, published, I believe, in the 1930s. And you can still find it. You can look up a a white paper that the State Department put together in 2014 analyzing China's claims in the South China Sea, and it includes an image of this original map. And what's interesting about the map, what's famous about it, is there's a series of dashed lines that extend from the Chinese mainland uh, in a kind of a 
long semicircle down into the China Sea and then back up again. So they, they nearly encircle the South China Sea, paralleling the coasts of all those bordering countries that I just described. And although this map originally included 11 dashed lines that were very roughly defining this area, uh, it, it is most commonly referred to as the nine dashed line. The nine dashed line is kind of the, the heart of the debate with China about the South China Sea. And that's because that in, in subsequent iterations of, of Chinese mapping, they have fairly consistently retraced this line, this very rough line. I mean, you can imagine trying to spread nine dashes over hundreds of thousands of square miles of ocean. It's very approximate but they've drawn it with nine dashes as a, as a courtesy to their then fellow communist nation of Vietnam. Uh, they took two lines out of the um, Gulf of Tonkin. So they did not purport to try to divide up a Gulf that Vietnam had historical ties to, but the remainder of those nine lines, China has continued to assert various claims and their claims have been ambiguous and probably intentionally so. So the original map of, that, that showed the, the 11 dashed lines, the origin of the nine dashed line claim, had as its title, Chinese islands in the South China Sea. That was the title of the map. And so you could reasonably look at this line that, that China had drawn and understand that China was encircling groups of islands in the South China Sea that it believed it had a claim to. And this is just a claim over those pieces of land, which as with any piece of land on the planet, a country can assert a claim to, and it does not necessarily uh, implicate the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. But what China has done in the years since this first map was published is to make statements to the effect that it has historic claims over the South China Sea itself, not just the islands that are contained within that nine dash line, but the actual waters contained within that nine dash line. And in order to analyze those claims, you have to go somewhat deep into the, into the UNCLOS uh, regime of rocks and islands, because the, the islands in the South China Sea don't amount to much in terms of land area. You know, it's a matter of a few hundred square kilometers total. And there, there are large groups of islands, sometimes they're referred to as atolls, often built up from coral. Some of them are above the, the high water mark at all times. Many are what are called low tide elevations. You only see them at low tide. And it was recently determined by a tribunal uh, in response to a complaint by the Philippines that, that reported out from, from the UNCLOS framework in 2016, that none of the, the what are called the Spratly Islands close to the Philippines have uh, the ability to sustain life. And that's important in the UNCLOS framework because an island, something that is above water at high tide, which can also sustain life, creates its own exclusive economic zone. So the, the impact of that island instantly extends out from in a big circle, 200 nautical miles in diameter on all sides. So you can imagine the significance if one could, could claim uh, sovereignty over an island 
and then extend uh, 200 nautical miles from this small piece of land out into the ocean. The South China Sea itself is believed to have somewhere between 20 and 150 billion barrels of oil reserves. So China is, uh, as are other countries with claims to the, to the, um, to the waters, uh, interested in asserting its rights over that body of water. In addition to that, a, a large percentage of the world's shipping goes through the South China Sea. We all know what a manufacturing powerhouse China has become in the years since uh, it ratified UNCLOS. And, and much of what it produces goes in and out of certainly European markets through the South China Sea and then up through what's called the Straits of Malacca in between Malaysia and Singapore and into the Indian Ocean headed for Europe. Uh, other other exports, of course, go the other way to the U.S. When I've looked at this area on Google Earth, I've zoomed in on some islands and I've seen really small islands with one or two buildings constructed on them. Are these buildings there to try to show that these islands are habitable? Yes, that's that is the the strategic uh, gambit that China has has embarked on. So what they have done is. Uh, They've attempted to improve what what are considered rocks under UNCLOS. These are islands that are not constantly exposed and which don't sustain human habitation. But China has improved them in a sense. They've dredged sand from the ocean floor around uh, these these little rocks, built them up in elevation so that they would be continuously uh, exposed at, at high tide, and then built things like runways, buildings, military outposts, all the while, interestingly, under the claim that it was doing civil activity, that this was not for, for military purposes, because it believed that was in the interest of, its, of the legitimacy of its assertions. China has embarked on this, on this framework that other countries find sort of difficult to comprehend, because there's nothing in UNCLOS that says if you improve a rock in the middle of the ocean, it, it creates any rights at all. One of the provisions that talks about rocks in UNCLOS talks about rocks that are off, off your coast. And so if a, if a rock is a low tide elevation and it's within a coastal state's territorial sea and the coastal state improves the rock, for example, erects a, uh, a lighthouse on it. By improving the rock and essentially creating a structure that is now always above water, uh, the coastal state acquires the right under UNCLOS to use the rock now as, as part of its baseline. So if the rock is, you know, extends out from the coast at nautical mile number 11, then in parallel, the territorial sea is going to extend out another 11 nautical miles, and so also the exclusive economic zone. So there is a, you know, you'd say it's a marginal advantage to be gained from improving a rock off of a coastal state's coast. But there's no such framework that addresses, addresses rocks in the middle of the high sea, which is what China has undertaken to improve. Uh, and it's it's been ambiguous in what it was attempting to do, but people have surmised that 
it was essentially trying to translate this, this rocks regime to an island on the high seas. So that's the first part of Chinese of China's strategic approach. The second has been to claim uh, sovereignty over islands that one could at least argue are capable of sustaining life. You know, they're exposed at high tide. They have some plants. They have some natural populations of animals. They've been used as bases for fishermen for centuries. Uh, and in fact, Chinese fishermen have used some of these islands. There are islands called the Paracels off of the Vietnamese coast, the Spratlys that I mentioned. And China has its own names for these groups of islands, of course. But China's claims to some of these islands are as legitimate as anyone else's. Philippines lays claims to these. All the countries that I mentioned encircling the South China Sea have their own claims to various islands and reefs in the, in the South China Sea. But what China has attempted to do is, is to assert that certain of these islands can support life because uh, a high tide elevation that supports life, as I mentioned before, creates an easy. So China made one of these assertions over an island that was claimed by the Philippines in the, in the Spratlys. And uh, under UNCLOS uh, Part 7, there was a, uh, an arbitration panel convened at the request of the Philippines. And that arbitration panel was, was asked to decide a number of assertions by the Philippines, but essentially the, the basic assertion was that this, this whole approach that China was, was, uh, was taking in the South China Sea infringed on the rights of the Philippines to its own claims of, a, of an exclusive economic zone and was, was counter to the UNCLOS regime that China had, had signed up for. There's, um, in the best of circumstances, in the, in, the, in the circumstances most favorable to China's assertions, if it were able to claim uh, that any of these islands that it has, that believes it has sovereignty over, created an, an, an exclusive economic zone, that zone would overlap the EEZ of other countries that border the South China Sea. And so under UNCLOS, what, what is supposed to happen is that when EEZs overlap, uh, the two countries negotiate and they figure out how they're going to divide up the overlapping EEZs. So um, long story short, this, this arbitration tribunal reported out in 2016 and it, it decided almost every claim in favor of the Philippines. Uh, it concluded that the one island that China, China's best claim uh, of island status and, and creation of an EEZ, which was called Taiping Island in the Spratlys, was in fact not capable of sustaining life, that it, it had not historically had any permanent populations, uh, that populations would be unable to, to conduct economic activity year in, year out, year round, that would allow a permanent population to be established there. And so it, it ruled against China's most optimistic claim, and it also ruled against the, the more um, fringe claims of, of improving rocks and turning them into bodies that would create a territorial sea. One question that's sort of uh, coming up in my mind is if China had this historic 
uh, nine dash line in the area and was so involved in the development of UNCLOS, why did they ratify something that doesn't seem to support their claim to the region? It's a great question. And the answer is, uh, as far as anybody can analyze from the historical record and then look at China's statements today, is that clearly at the time, you know, when China was in a much earlier stage of, of its economic development, its interest was in asserting rights over its coastline and extending out from its coastline. So it was, it was a big beneficiary of this EEZ regime that was created and, and continues to be. You know, there's plenty of good economic resources underneath China's legitimate EEZ 200 nautical miles out from its coasts. So it doesn't want to lose that claim. But what it has, as it's grown more powerful, more economically uh, powerful as well, is uh, it has asserted additional rights that are divorced from the UNCLOS framework. And it has attempted to say that these are essentially rights that are independent of UNCLOS, that are uh, historical rights and that are subject to customary international law, which is certainly a legitimate body of law. The problem that, that certainly this tribunal under UNCLOS found with that argument was that UNCLOS was explicitly framed to supersede the customary international law of, of the high seas. It created its own new maritime regime, which is why the U.S. can get away with claiming that UNCLOS now represents customary international law and attempt to enforce UNCLOS without ever signing it. That kind of having your cake and wanting to eat it too is plenty of ammunition for China to make its assertions, uh, which are not grounded in, in the treaty. But it doesn't put the U.S. in a particularly good position to counter them, certainly not what the former commander of the U.S. Pacific Command called moral authority about five or six years ago. Uh, but, but nonetheless, the U.S. continues to assert, assert navigation rights within the South China Sea through what are called uh, freedom of navigation operations. And this is a function that the State Department coordinates with the U.S. Navy. And actual missions are put together where typically a carrier group task force will sail into a disputed area. It's not always South China Sea. There are other disputed, what the U.S. considers excessive claims over the high seas. And by, by sailing through those areas and creating a record of it, essentially assert that the claims are not valid. And this is, this is a kind of a reference to how customary international law is developed. It's developed when nations fairly uniformly adhere to it. And so by creating a record that the U.S. is a persistent objector to these claims, the desire is that this, this Chinese claim over the South China Sea will not take on the status of customary international law simply by, by the force of being asserted through the years. And you mentioned um, the U.S. asserting its uh, navigational rights over the South China Sea. Is that the extent of the United States role in the area? Um, or are they taking on a greater role as a, almost like a dispute mediator? Or are they asserting claims of their own? Is that the extent, just the navigational? Uh, it's, it's not the full extent. The U.S. has allied itself with uh, a number of these other countries which border the South China Sea and which have their own claims. And so diplomatically, the U.S. 
supports those claims in in various ways. It, it has submitted input to adjudicative bodies trying to negotiate these matters. It's put its diplomatic weight behind countries like Vietnam and the Philippines as they struggle to maintain control over areas that they, they believe they have sovereign rights to. Uh, and, and of course, simply by being present in the South China Sea, even if the U.S. Navy isn't on a formal freedom of navigation operation, it has some impact on China's ability to sort of be the biggest player in that area, which it certainly would be otherwise. And so U.S. presence, uh, I think, is, is fairly desired by those smaller nations that are trying to stand up to China in, in what's become, you know, an assertion of who can exert the most force. And would it be safe to say that the United States is also economically motivated to be active in this region? Yeah, the U.S. has has economic interests, uh, certainly in in reliable navigation through the South China Sea. It doesn't want to have its own flagged vessels in a position where they need to ask China's permission to to sail through the South China Sea and and then out through the Straits of Malacca, for example. Interestingly, China feels some vulnerability in this whole equation, uh, even though it's it's viewed by many as the aggressor. China is in a long-standing conflict with India. And one of China's worries is that uh, India could act fairly quickly simply because of it being geographically much closer to the Straits of Malacca. Uh, it, you know, it could very quick and it has a has a very competent navy. It could steam quickly southeast, block the straits and prevent China from uh, getting its goods through to one of its most lucrative markets in Europe. So, uh, you know, China certainly feels some vulnerability in its, in, in its geography and um, is attempting to redress that in a number of ways. It, it has concluded uh, an agreement with Pakistan to create an overland route to get goods from uh, the Indian Ocean up into China. It's now exploring Arctic routes as a workaround to uh, the, the possibility that the, the Straits of Malacca could be closed and its South China Sea you know, primary routes could be blocked temporarily. So this is very much in flux. And what are China's, I guess, naval capabilities at this point? Constantly growing. China is, is building aircraft carriers. Uh, it certainly is. It's not in a position to challenge the, the U.S. naval superiority in the region as yet, but um, most people think that day is coming. So realistically, how are the issues in this region going to be resolved, or how can they be resolved? Like, will a new treaty ultimately have to be drafted, or will things sort of diffuse on their own? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I was thinking about it, too, as I was reviewing all of this uh, all this history, because it seems it seems fairly obvious that at some point um, one of two things will happen. China will either continue to to get stronger, and if the U.S. either opts out or becomes less and less able to assert its own military power in the South China Sea, something that certainly U.S. leaders hope will never happen. 
that, that China essentially becomes the de facto uh, keeper of the South China Sea. You know, no countries, I don't think, ever going to recognize a claim that's completely divorced from the UNCLOS framework. But China has been very careful not to assert that explicitly. It, it has maintained uh, a strategic ambiguity in its claims over the South China Sea. And so interestingly, the U.S. Has, has taken the position that China hasn't asserted a claim and therefore the U.S. has nothing to object to formally. So that's one possibility is that China would simply eventually win by virtue of persistence and strength. The other possibility is some sort of a negotiated settlement wherein uh, China's strength in the region would undoubtedly be recognized in terms of the, the, the terms of an eventual settlement. You know, it might, it might well find that its claims over some of these islands, uh, the groups of islands that, that we mentioned before, are formally recognized, are negotiated with the competing countries who also claim those islands, that there's some kind of a division of those claims and everybody winds up with rocks and islands they can call their own. And then, you know, the, um, the UNCLOS regime sort of defaults into creating, you know, what, what maritime boundaries spring from that. I would call that the best case scenario. Uh, there's no evidence currently that it's, it's likely to happen. And uh, as I mentioned before, the, the U.S.'s ability to, to encourage or even pressure a solution like that is, is limited by not ever having ratified UNCLOS. Mm. And where would you suggest that people that are interested in this topic, uh, where would you suggest that they go to read more on it? If somebody wants to, to get into this topic at a reasonably deep level, but not so technical that it's, that it's intimidating, that, that 2014 um, white paper that the State Department put out is, is a great read. Um, I say that knowing how geeky it sounds. The name of this, if you ever want to Google it, is called Limits in the Seas. It's white paper number 143. And its title is, so it's a, it's a series called Limits in the Seas, State Department. And the title is Maritime Claims in the South China Sea. It's not a terribly long document. It was issued in anticipation of that 2016 tribunal decision. So all of the disputes, all of the, the topics that were being disputed are discussed, but the outcome wasn't known when it was when it was written. And the part that I like best is it has all these these really interesting maps. Um, and it even goes so far as to, if you can imagine this, analyze the arbitrary drawing of where these nine dashed lines have been put over the years and what that might say, if anything, about, about the nature of China's claims. So that's, as I say, that's kind of an interesting read. Another pretty good read about UNCLOS in general is the Senate's report uh, issued in 2007 by none other than uh, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time, Senator Joseph Biden, oh. and uh, recommending ratification of UNCLOS. And what that document does in, again, not too many pages and not a ton of technical language is, is to go through the history of how UNCLOS came to be and attempt to tick through the objections other senators were raising and explain why they've either been resolved or 
are incorrect or are irrelevant and, and not a reason to keep out of the unclass regime. So those are the two resources that I would, I would highlight for folks. A quick question about ratification of UNCLOS. Do you see that happening in the United States future at all? Because you, you've mentioned it's got a long history kind of, of being tried to push through and then it, they pulled it back and they didn't want to do it and they still haven't. Do you see that happening? Yeah, you know, optimistically, I, I do in, in much the same way that I see uh, a time eventually where our politics become less polarized and it becomes possible to have reasoned discussion about what the facts are. There really are not a lot of good fact-based reasons anymore to not ratify UNCLOS. And traditionally conservative uh, or viewed as conservative entities such as the naval establishment, uh, Republican administrations over the years have have uniformly recommended its ratification. And so that tells me that certainly conservative thinkers are capable of being convinced by these arguments. And there are great reasons for the U.S. strategically to to adhere to UNCLOS. It's in its own interest in many, many ways around the globe. Um, One one way that was highlighted uh, during the kind of at the highlight of the global war on terrorism was there was this proliferation security initiative. You know, there was a there was a time uh, when the U.S. was very worried about the proliferation of nuclear weapons and how they could be transferred uh, on the high seas to bad actors. And so the U.S. put together a whole regime where um, ships could be challenged. There's a there's a rule for that under UNCLOS called uh, the right of approach and searched if they were suspected of, of transiting illegal uh, weapons of mass destruction. Well, without adherence to UNCLOS, you know, once again, our, our ability to, to pursue that whole program is, is um, somewhat limited. So that's why there is an interest in recognizing it as customary international law. We can still take those measures. Yeah, that's, that's a huge part of certainly why the national security establishment is in favor of, of UNCLOS. You know, and the remaining objection is essentially this objection that international organizations are are bad, are not to be trusted, are infringements on sovereignty, uh, cost too much money. One of the arguments that's 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 made in that Biden report in 2007 is that this deep seabed mining authority uh, organization is based in Jamaica and it only has 40 employees. So. <laughs> No, no giant bureaucracy to worry about. Yeah. Perfect. Well, with that, that wraps up our time here on the Podviet today, Professor. Uh, thank you for your time this morning. Do you have any final thoughts for us before we head out? Uh, it, this is a topic that, that becomes visible from time to time, uh, and then it, it goes back under the surface. And so it's an area of the law, certainly for lawyers and law students that are interested in, in international law. Uh, and maritime law, that it pays to to kind of maintain a, a, a constant awareness of, uh, so that you understand when things when things develop. Thank you so much. This has been an illuminating conversation of some from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have that much background knowledge of the area. I had known about its strategic value and things like that, but really this discussion expanded that. So I wanted to say thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. 
That is all from us here at the Podbucket. Thank you for joining us today. And our team wants to hear from you. If there is a topic you want our show to cover, an event you would like us to address, or just something you are passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. The managing editor is Radhika Sutherland. And our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leon Jossen, and Lenny Reinhardt. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. And thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podcast.